Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with Simon Barber, Senior Research Fellow at Birmingham City University and co-host of the Soda Jerker on Songwriting podcast, which features interviews with some of the world's most successful songwriters, including Jeff Lynne, Sting, Diane Warren, Niall Rogers, Alicia Keys and Paul McCartney. You can find out more information about me and the projects that I'm working on at robertlaymusic.co.uk and across social media as Robert Lay Music. Okay, here's my conversation with Simon. Hi Simon, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good, thank you for doing this for us today. What have I interrupted today to talk to you? Um, probably about 2,000 emails. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what I would have been doing. I've got to do some lecturing later on. Okay, so we're here at uh, Millennium Point, Birmingham University. That's Birmingham City University. Birmingham City University. Um, just remind us what your job title here is and how long you've been here for. I'm Senior Research Fellow. Uh-huh. I focus mainly on songwriting and I've been here for... 10 years. I started around 2009. Mm-hmm. So actually it's a little bit over 10 years now. Fantastic. Yeah. And what drew you here? First of all, was it, were you here for that job? Or were you in Birmingham to begin with anyway? Um, I'd, well, I'd done my PhD at the University of Liverpool and then ended up in Birmingham just because my wife is from the sort of black country area. And then, you know, continuing my academic career, I ended up finding all these people at Birmingham City who were interested in pop music and media and those sorts of things. And so I joined that team. Fantastic. Yeah. And that has led on recently. We met through the songwriting studies. That's right. Tell us a little bit about songwriting studies then. Well, because I've got this interest in songwriting, I realised at some point that academia is really focused on popular music, but there isn't that much attention paid to songwriting, which is actually the fount of popular music, you know? Yeah. And there are people out there doing work on songwriting. You know, there's people who are in the sort of production field who focus on it. There's people who come at it from all kinds of different angles, English literature. They might be looking at lyrics or Mm -hmm. um, there's people who who are concerned with songwriting as a tool for social change or something like that. But they don't tend to get invited together under any kind of umbrella. And so the idea of songwriting studies was to get professionals, academics and scholars together mm-hmm. to have conversations for the first time, basically. So I applied for some funding to the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which is the AHRC, and got funding for that in 2019. So we planned out four events over two years. It's a two-year project. Yeah. And um, we've had the first two of those already. So I met you at the launch event, which was March 2019. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was the one where you had Katie Tunstall. She came and did a live podcast with us. And uh, we did the second one in August of 2019. And that was with Niall Rogers in London. So that was great. But the the whole point of the network really is to start to establish a field of songwriting studies to to map out that field and show that there are all kinds of people in different disciplines Mm -hmm. who are working with songwriting. And, you know, it deserves to have a, a sort of a, a a name of its own, really, yeah. as, a, as a field of study. And there's going to be a journal as well, isn't there? That's, really That's right, yeah. So one of the core kind of academic components of doing the network is to put together publications and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we've got the first two issues of the Songwriting Studies Journal plan for September. We put out a call and we got a really strong response. So people in all kinds of different areas are writing about songwriting and we're going to collate all that material together in the journal. So yeah, the, f- the first two issues we'll launch with a kind of a, a bumper double issue. Fantastic. <laughs> in September, yeah. One of the things that struck me at the conference was some of your keynote speakers talking right. about the way that songwriting and the industry is actually heading at the moment. So one thing in particular that I thought was interesting was this idea that, um, melody and lyric writers are suddenly a thing again, <laughs> right? You know, like you have someone whose job is the top line. Yeah which kind of feels like that wasn't, it was a thing back in your Brill building days and then it kind of disappeared a bit because it was singer-songwriters and two people writing for a band. And then all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, but at the moment we've gone back to this idea of this person writes your groove, this person writes your your top line. And I found that quite interesting that 
Just yeah. how things are changing in that respect. Yeah, I guess it, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? I mm. mean, as you say, you could go back to the early days where most songwriting teams were, you know, a lyricist and, and a melodist, and, and they would combine their forces to produce work. Yeah. Um, and I guess as technology's evolved, you know, songwriters have, have started to um, break down those individual tasks again. So, mm. you know, if you've got a laptop, you can basically do any aspect of the process. So you can go away and become a specialist in top line in pop mm. tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the organizations that produce large catalogs of material over the years have have used those kind of discrete roles. They've farmed out tracks for people to put melodies on. Yeah. And, and it's certainly in the, in the sort of contemporary pop world, Production teams, they all work that way, don't they? And that's how you end up with, you know, sort of six co-writers on exactly. a track. Which, yeah. when you sit and think, how does six people sit in a room and write a song? It's, well, it's the don't, it's some element. It's somebody's provided a, a, a rhythmic element. Somebody's producing the top line or whatever. Yeah. The artist is maybe involved in the co-writing in terms of the actual lyrical content i guess yeah and maybe sometimes there are people credited who didn't really contribute that much that's an interesting thing isn't it? it's just part of the negotiation of working with a major star for example that they're going to take a percentage of the publishing you know yes and (laughs) that thing you get now where uh to sort of circumvent the idea that your song might sound like something that exists you're given a co-writing credit already somebody (laughs) from a previous song that i won't say any names but there's one i noticed recently where i was quite surprised to see that a particular rock star was a co-writer on this person's <laughs> album. I was like, oh, look into that. And it was actually that they just decided this song they'd written sounded a bit like this other person's stuff, so asked beforehand. Yeah, that and you're does like, happen a lot. That's very interesting. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously, you know, you've got so many cases from the past where it's come up after the event and caused problems. Absolutely. So I guess it's trying to... Yeah, I think the, the sort of legal teams of these major record labels are so hot on that now that they're looking for any opportunity to kind of circumvent uh, an infringement lawsuit or something, you know? And of course, as technology develops and we get more and more into AI, those tools are going to be able to say, hang on, (laughs) you know, the thing you're writing sounds like these 20,000 other progressions that we've heard on this catalog, which we know about because we've, we've got access to Apple's database or whatever. Yeah, that's it. And you've used one of those same 12 notes, the only 12 <laughs> notes that there are. Yeah, interesting stuff. And the AI thing's really fascinating as well. That came up in the songwriting studies conference it too. Did. This idea that the machines can write the songs for us now. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been a, a theme for a while in the more kind of like library music field mm. because, you know, if you're going to write instrumental music to accompany images, it doesn't necessarily have to be written by a human. Um, we assume that pop music does have to be written by humans because it's got that kind of emotional connectivity that maybe machines can't handle. But even that is getting to the point where I think, you know, we're not going to be able to tell soon Mm. what was written by who or what. Which of course has really interesting and potentially quite scary (laughs) ramifications for songwriters. I mean, I guess there's an argument that says that machines won't necessarily be able to originate in the way that human beings do because machines are going to be devising songs based on their knowledge of existing catalogs that we yeah. pump into the machine. But then again, that's kind of what songwriters do anyway. So definitely. Yeah. That's it. And, and, you know, innovators often are innovating because they know the rules already and they're kind of breaking them a bit. So I guess perhaps the machines would be able to do that too. Yeah. You would assume so. Yeah. If you get enough information into a machine, then it can, understand what the patterns are and then change those patterns. Yeah. Very interesting. Mm. Okay. Talking about songwriting then, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your, um, how you got into music, if that's not too long a story. And it probably kind of, is quite a long story. Or sort of just tell us some of the stuff that you were doing then outside of academia in terms of a, as a musician. Okay. So when I was six, <laughs> um, my well, great granddad, I, I, I did get into mu- music as quite an early age. I think, um, even now, just thinking back to being able to understand tunes and and sing tunes back to people and have people sort of be surprised that I, I kind of had an aff- affinity for music, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it became more serious later on when I was about 14 and I wanted to learn the guitar. My sister had a boyfriend who played the electric guitar and he, he gave me a lesson on it. You know, a sort of a luminous yellow electric guitar oh, with stickers on, you know. Fantastic. And I think he played the Sweet Child of Mine through the auxiliary on our hi-fi. <laughs> and that, that was me kind of done then, <laughs> you know. Also, I'd probably seen Back to the Future in 1985 and... 
you know, once you've seen Marty McFly doing Johnny Be Good. That's that. That's that, yeah. There must have been a lot so, of guitar players kicked off by that film. I think I so, you know, of my generation, because I saw that movie when I was about seven, I suppose. Yeah. And that just, that's a memory that stays with you, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I really was keen on the electric guitar. And uh, as soon as I started practicing on my own guitar, I started writing songs. So, mm. yeah. And mainly, I think... um I had more of a lyrical focus early on because I filled book after book with words, you know. I guess I was one of those um, sort of fairly intense teens who thought that my thoughts were worthwhile and I had to put them in a book, you know. Yeah, must record them. Yeah. <laughs> for mankind for the future. That's interesting that songwriting came fairly soon as well because yeah. it doesn't for everybody. Some of the musicians I speak to, songwriting is a is a later thing, really. Yeah, I mean, I was already writing songs by the time I started my first band. I already mm. had a catalogue of songs, you know. Um, I think technology was quite important as well because I was always interested in equipment. And so the first thing I managed to get was um, in high school. We, I went to a Catholic high school, and so we had a music teacher called Brother James, who was this guy who was really, you know, hippie, introduced us to XTC and all kinds That's of bands. And... Um, they had an Amstrad Studio 100 in the music office, which was like an ancient four track with about as big as a fridge, you know. And, um, he sold it to me for 50 pounds. Wow. And so I took it home and started making all my first demos on this machine and with Brian, actually, uh, who does Soda Jerker with me. Yeah. We were already, you know, writing songs together at that point. So Brian took up the bass to join my first band, which was called Blue Rinse. It was a <laughs> sort of a beat combo, you know. Yeah. And the lead singer of that actually got, went on to become a, a fairly well-known philosopher, which is interesting. No, it's interesting. Yeah. Oh, cool. And then you've done f film is something you've been quite involved with. I, well, I mean, I was a, a, a movie fanatic from probably from 1985, when Back to the Future came film, out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I was always interested in film music and collecting soundtracks and that sort of thing. And uh, over the years, various songs that we've written have ended up on, you know, the soundtracks for various awful movies. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I've always been around film and interested in film and I've um, contributed to special features on Blu-rays and things like that and written liner notes for Blu-ray releases. And I know a lot of people in the film business, you know, so I've always been around that, but yeah, I guess music was always my primary love, you know. So I went from the Studio 100 Amstrad to the <laughs> Roland VS 1680, which was a nice sort of standalone 16-track recorder, and then onto Pro Tools and Logic and all of that. But there was always sort of a technical aspect of it that pushed me on, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of trying to develop, you know, songs and recordings of songs. Great. And if we could talk a bit about then how the podcast itself, so this is Soda Jerker on songwriting, yeah, where you're interviewing songwriters. Yeah talking about, well, their careers, but I guess there is quite a focus on the actual, their process of songwriting as well. Yeah, we try to avoid talking about the the sort of things that you get on most podcasts, which is about, you know, touring or fame or celebrity or, you know, yeah. anything to do with their personal lives, really. What we're interested in is process. It's know, creative process. Yeah. Which is, again, I suppose there's a, a, a similarity with the songwriting studies is that, although all of these careers are based on the songwriting and the songs and the music, it doesn't get discussed all that much, does it, I guess? For the, whether Not really. The, the general I mean, public doesn't tend to hear about how songwriting actually happens. Exactly, because I guess it's just more exciting to talk to a celebrity about parties celebrity or clothes stuff, or yeah. whatever. But um, when we started in 2011, we did that search where we were looking for, okay, so what songwriting podcasts are there? And really, there was next to nothing. You know, there might have been one or two where people were talking about their own songs, but there wasn't any long-form interviews with successful songwriters about their process. Mm. So we were lucky in that we just got in there early, really. Mm. And that's one of the great things, I feel, that the way things are at the moment is that it is possible to create quite a specialist um, show, if you like. So uh, our discussion about songwriting might not make it weekly onto Radio <laughs> 2 or whatever because it would be a fairly niche of audience. Course. But it's a great audience and a really um, fascinated audience. So it is possible to just create that thing yourself and have a, a great audience for it. Yeah, well, that's and the, the beauty the of podcasting. the technology is there to do it. Yeah, podcasting is just fantastic in that sense. It's just mm. a level playing field. You can go out there and follow your passion and find your audience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's incredible, really. That's it. And serve that audience with what they're really interested in. Exactly. Because so often, I always find as well, because I was trying to find out about how people wrote songs or how their careers went. And you would listen to those sort of um, 
normal media interviews. And that stuff would, the other stuff would be interesting, but you'd come away from it sometimes like, well, I've heard that anecdote three yeah. or four times. I, I want to know how that song came about. And it, kind of having a podcast that does it, it's almost like getting to have a conversation with that person yourself, really, isn't it, as a listener? Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, that's a really nice way to put it. <laughs> well, it yeah, because you're, you know, you're likely to ask some of the things that we as songwriters would be interested in asking. Yeah, well, that's, that was one of our remits when we started, was just to find that stuff out, you know. Yeah, and that's part of my idea with this, is to talk to creative people, but about the stuff that doesn't get spoken about. So when I was getting into music and theatre and the other stuff that I've done, it's like you'd see something, but like, how have they done that? And and what's it like? You know, and are they happy? Is it easy? And of course, as you get into it, whoever you talk to, whatever level they are, it's not easy. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and well, they're not that happy most of the time with the way things are going, I guess, as well. Yeah. I mean, it's such a complicated business, isn't it? Yeah. And oftentimes stories of how people got to where they are, are just simplified, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Uh, certainly, you know, when you talk to major stars, there's always that leap where they say, oh, you know, I started writing songs when I was 15, and I was on stage with Brian May, and, you know, and you go, okay, so... <laughs> you missed a bit, Just backtrack, <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, getting inside process for me is just one way to understand yeah. how, how things really work, you yeah. know. When you started the podcast from scratch, who was your first guest in the very first episode? The first guest was Billy Steinberg. So was that an approach from you to bit? I guess it, must it was the yeah. first one. And, you know, we were really lucky to get him. If you don't know, Billy Steinberg wrote Like a Virgin for Madonna. He wrote True Colours. He wrote Eternal Flame for wow. the Bangles with his partner, Tom Kelly. And uh, I drove all night for Roy Orbison. All kinds of hits over the yeah. years. You know, the guy's incredible. And we hadn't recorded anything. We didn't have a single episode. And we just wrote him an email and said, do you fancy being a guest on this podcast? It's about songwriting. And he wrote back, within a couple of days and said, sounds great. We need to shine a light on songwriters. Oh, wow. And we were like, oh, wow. And then the second one we approached was Todd Rundgren, the major American producer songwriter we've admired for years. And we got a yes back almost straight away. And so that was just a fluke really for us. But mm. because of that, we were able to build on that and say, well, you know, Todd's doing the show. Maybe you can do the That's show. It. Yeah. <laughs> like we now so. have evidence of what we've done. Yeah. Cause, cause I've tried that with that. So I think about what's it like to receive the, um, the approach, but hi, I'm someone you've never heard of. Do you want to come on a podcast and talk to me? And some people don't want to talk about stuff like that anyway. Uh, so people don't particularly like being interviewed or whatever. Um, but I guess it's just a matter of, putting it out there isn't it you ask someone exactly that can either ignore you say no or say yes well yeah if you don't ask you don't get you know yeah so you've got to ask the question and you know there is a certain amount of persistence and um sort of almost a kind of a psychotic kind of um, sort of uh patience that you need to be able to do it because you know you might send 100 emails and literally get two replies yeah and for a lot of people that would be enough to say well this doesn't work doesn't work yeah you know but if you you know you send another hundred and another hundred and another hundred eventually you'll have eight and so it's worth it you know over time but yeah patience and persistence i think yeah. and of course you're essential. building it all the time so you've got more of a track record of yeah and eventually you get to the point where we're at now where we don't have to ask anymore. We just get a constant stream of offers for things, which is great. Yeah. And that's, again, because the podcast has its track record now. Of, exactly. Of doing good interviews and having interesting people on. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's it. You know, so it's, um, it makes it a lot easier, doesn't it, for the publicist or whatever to pitch it to an artist and be like, well, so-and-so's done it. Yeah. And so-and-so's done it. So, you know, it's it's that legitimacy, isn't it? When you, I guess with starting out with anything, you have no... You got your credentials as a person or whatever, but for a new project, it's just that element of yeah. I think legitimacy of sort of saying it works. Yeah, <laughs> we've done it a load of times, and it's a huge risk to take. I mean, when we started, we were just thinking, okay, we're writing songs together. How can we share our kind of vibe with people? And if people like us, maybe they'll like what we're writing. And we thought, well, what if we do a podcast? And we thought, okay, well, we'll do a podcast about us writing songs. Mm. Then we thought, well, actually, no one's going to care about that. But what if we interview people who people do care about and we'd get to meet them and talk to them and we love them? Yeah. And then, you know, it, it, it develops a whole kind of network around what you do as well. You get to, you get to know the publicists and the managers and the people who surround the people that you love. And so it's a win-win for us, really. And just, it's a reason to meet some of these people. Of course, well, you know, it's, it's like, fabulous. Yeah. If you were to email these people and say, do you want to, 
chat about songwriting with me for an hour. It'd probably be no thanks. But <laughs> hey, there's a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, so and so is done. Would you be interested in doing that? And I guess at some element, people get in touch when they've got stuff to sell. Of course, yeah. I mean, most of the people we speak to are on some kind of promotional circuit for a new record or whatever. But that's a great excuse for us often to talk to them. And we get to prioritize what they're working on right now. Which they're which is, more interested in. Well, of course, no one wants, you know, Paul McCartney does not want you to sit down with him and say, so, Penny Lane, you know, he's told that story a thousand times. Yeah. He wants to tell you about his new record and what he's working on right now. And that's what all creative people are like. They're most excited about the thing they're doing right now. And that's what makes a podcast like yours more interesting because it's not the same stories. Like the McCartney thing is a case in point because right. you got a little bit of a exclusive almost didn't you like he played you something that he had been kind of working on there and there yeah well we were asking him about whether he stores ideas on his phone or in notebooks and stuff and he pointed to a bag on the floor and he said yeah they're all in there and he, he, had, <laughs> he had a bag full of notebooks next to him which was interesting but then he pulled out his phone and just started playing a voicemail that he'd left for himself or a, a voice memo and it was a, a you know a song that mccartney was working on and so we got to hear that for the first time. I don't think anyone else had heard it. So, yeah. Which I've never seen in a McCartney interview before him do something that's not like quite prepared. Yeah, yeah. So that was an amazing moment for us. I mean, when Paul McCartney pulls out his phone and starts playing you, <laughs> his work in a progress. Sketch, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. And I guess that it's another thing potentially about podcasts, isn't it? Is that he is responding to the fact that it's quite a laid back chat, really, yeah. a conversation compared to the, so many interviews that people like that must do in studios, radio, TV studios, where perhaps it does feel more difficult to be um, unguarded. I yeah. guess, where if it's just a chat with two other people, maybe it's easier. Yeah, although I guess there's a sort of uh, paradox in there somewhere in the fact that what we do is prepare very hard in order to create a kind of a relaxed environment. Whereas there's a lot of podcasts that are about getting together with your mates and talking for 45 minutes or an hour or mm -hmm. two hours, mm -hmm. or some of them are four hours, you know, and we don't do that. What we want is a distillation of a lot of information in a short space of time yeah. in a kind of a fun, relaxed way. And the way that you do that is by kind of over-preparing almost That's it. so that you can go down any avenue with them and still hit upon interesting information and still have a knowledge of what it is they're talking about. That's it. So you are quite, yeah, quite expert, I guess, on that person's back catalogue of their career. Yeah. And you're knowing the points that you want to hit, but it's flexible enough that if something happens exactly. like the McCartney incident, you can know, okay, that's, yeah. Be better than anything we were so that's, ask you. that's how you get gold, basically, I think. Mm. A lot of pre preparation beforehand and yeah. sort of going with it. And you were saying that sometimes because you have people approaching you now, it might be an artist who you're not so familiar with. And then that will be going away and discovering a back catalogue, which is another great, byproduct of it i guess it's a fantastic excuse for me to get to listen to new Lots music, music yeah. yeah and you know sometimes you get a whole new appreciation for someone when you discover oh my god you know i've heard this name so much i've never had the chance to investigate now that i'm faced with it and i'm going to be face to face with this person I i'm really getting to understand why they're so revered you know mm -hmm. and that's great that's a lovely experience to have now talking to all of these songwriters is there are there things that come up quite often in terms of how their process works or their approach to creativity. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, there are things that all professionals do or have realized over the course of being professionals, and that's you've got to show up, basically. If you're not doing the work, you're not going to get the results. So pretty much all of the top people, no matter who they are, will walk into a room, sit down at a piano and try, like most days, to write something. And that's just really important as a lesson because I guess – when you're growing up, if you're creative and you hit upon things and it feels like magic, mm. you might think, well, hey, you know, that's how it's going to be forever. But ultimately, you know, within the music industries, if you you have the demands of producing a record by a certain time or whatever, and you have contracts and people who are employed by you and all of those things, um, you have to be able to deliver and waiting for inspiration is not the way that's going to work, really. Mm. So, yeah, most people, they have a strategy in place mm -hmm. that, that helps them produce. They they have a routine or they have uh, particular things they do to prepare themselves to be creative. So they might um, go for a walk, for example, or they might prepare the room in a certain way, keep things to hand, have a shave before they start, um, take in a lot of particular types of input. So they might read a lot of books, see a lot of movies, you know, try and get inspired to try and put lots of good material in so that they can produce something of quality themselves. Um, 
I guess the more sort of workaday songwriters, like your professional songwriters who collaborate on pop productions, yeah. they have, you know, even more sort of um, finite strategies for, or infinite strategies for, um, for trying to produce more and more material that might be of quality. So for example, um, uh, some of the people I've talked to from back in the day who worked in the Brill building, they used to write songs by substituting chords, reversing chord sequences, collaborating with different people on different days of the week. Uh, Almost anything they could do to try and make sure that there was going to be stuff coming along all the time. And and that material did produce hits, you know, so. Because I guess that must be one of the difficulties or or the fears for someone who's producing a lot of stuff. Well, maybe it's not. I was going to say, because like from my own songwriting, it's this constant thing of, I want to do something different. Like we've, or if I'm recording, it's like, well, we did that last time. Let's mm. start, let's start with an acapella chorus. We've never done that before. Um, and I guess if you're doing it all the time, it must be quite easy to fall back on knowing what works. Mm. I guess it's the context that if you're writing loads of songs for other people, perhaps you want that. Perhaps you want to produce stuff that you know that's going to work and pass it on to them. Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a blend, isn't it? It's finding a balance between what you do well, but also not quite repeating yourself. Yeah. We we had Richard Marks on recently and he talked about um, looking at a person's catalogue and trying to figure out what they do, but what they haven't actually done yet. Okay. So trying to <laughs> do something new in their voice, if you like. Right. Um, so oh, it's an inspiration for writing. Yeah, I find that interesting. McCartney's talked about that before, hasn't he? The idea of you're writing a song for Ray Charles. Ray Charles may never sing it, but in your head, you'll be. Yeah, people person. do do that. Yeah, as a strategy, they'll they'll imagine an art. They're writing a song for an artist. I think in Richard Mark's case, he was actually talking about actually writing a song for that artist. So being tasked to write for someone. Yeah, but um, you write that. People do write songs in the voice of someone else, and then it comes out in a completely different way. Yeah. And they say, "There's my new song." You know, that's it. Yeah. And do people talk about co-writing as well? So, because you've, I guess you've spoken to some people who are always solo songwriters and then others who've worked with different people. I, in co-writing for myself, I sort of find sometimes if it works really well, you end up with kind of this third songwriter. So if the yeah. two of us are writing a song, we might do something that's like, that's not what I'd normally do or that's not what you'd normally do, but that's okay because it's not, it's this yeah, imaginary third that, songwriter. Yeah, that combination. And it kind of gives you permission to do slightly different things, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And Graham Goldman from 10CC was someone who said that very thing on the podcast. Um, and I think Keith Urban has said that as well, that it's just um, the combination of certain personalities at a particular moment can produce something quite special, you know. And what you just said, though, that's the thing in it is at that moment. So, yeah, so sometimes you catch fire, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's like alchemy, isn't it? There's something. And that's what's one of the fascinating things about studying it and talking about it is at some level it's quite hard to pin down anything creative is. Absolutely. So it's it's trying to give yourself, as you say, these techniques and put yourself in the right situations and the right frame of mind, but still not knowing if it's going to work or not. Yeah. Is- and, and there are, you know, throughout the ages, there have been songwriting organizations and production houses that have really industrialized the art of trying to create more and more material in different ways. So, mm. um, you know, Stock Aiken Waterman, for mm. example, you know, they were round the clock 24 seven, take that Rick Astley chord sequence, play it backwards, put another vocal on it, you know, and then, for example, Xenomania, mm. you know, backing tracks, take the backing track, send it out to seven different writers, get the best bits back, try that bit on the verse. If it doesn't work, put it on the chorus, see if it works better there. You know, it's, mm. you know, it's like a modular kind of system that they're working with. Mm. And then there'll be other people, I guess, who you speak to who have none of that. And they're, exactly. they're insular and it's always the same process and it's always their own thing. And again, they're producing magic in in a different way. Absolutely, yeah. And that's what's so interesting about it is that they kind of get the same results in lots of different ways. So, yeah, the the sort of typically inspired songwriter who gets up, doesn't think about creativity particularly, but can just pick up a guitar and come up with something in 15 minutes. You know, that's another valid approach and that's just as equal, just as likely to produce a hit as any other approach, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how different things are with it. It's fascinating. Um, When you're getting your guests then, are there some people that it took several attempts to get them to come on? I think so, yeah. I mean, over the years, I've, I mean, for example, McCartney, we wanted him on when we started the podcast. And Episode we, one, hi, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's unlikely. Um, but we got him like seven years later. Yeah. So 
as I said earlier on, there's a certain amount of persistence and relationship building that goes on there. Yeah. You've got to kind of uh, just keep chipping away. At, hey, we're still here. We still love to do this. And uh, eventually, you know, it comes around. And for the other side of it, then, the actual building the audience, how straightforward has that been? I guess if you've got fairly famous songwriters on your podcast, that's going to draw people in. There must have been an element of pushing it yourselves, to, certainly to begin with as well. Yeah, although... I, I tend to be more of the mindset of, you know, if you build it, they will come sort of thing. Okay. I, just, I just try and make good stuff relentlessly mm-hmm. and I, in the hope that eventually people will, it will just become undeniable mm-hmm. and people will just be like, wow, this whole body of work exists, you know? Yeah. That's, that's more the way I tend to think of things. But, you know, we've done the usual things of trying to promote stuff through social media. And as you say, when an artist gets involved in promoting an episode, that's really helpful. So the fact that they share it to their fans and then their fans find the podcast, mm-hmm. that's a great way to build an audience, mm-hmm. you know, and that's probably pushed us into the millions of downloads, just having the audiences of those well-known people sure. pay attention. Was there a point when it kind of felt like that had happened or like that was happening with a particular episode that suddenly it was it tipped a, a, a point or not? Um, I guess there was some there, there are some people who just have very loyal followings. Mm. And so a Johnny Marr or a Katie Tunstall or someone like that, you suddenly realize, wow, <laughs> you know, their fans really do follow everything they do. And um, so getting some artists like that on a show can really help to, to shore up an audience. But I don't know if there's a tipping point particularly. I think for us, probably Paul Simon was a major tipping point wow. because – you know, that's a person you just do not have to explain to anyone. It is just Paul Simon. And, you know, oftentimes when you're talking about a podcast that's got lots of professional songwriters on, you might have to say, oh, yeah, it's, it's the person who wrote these songs. Mm. But with Paul Simon, that's just, you don't even have to do that, you know. So that was probably a major moment for us, probably the first major milestone, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of guests. Yeah. And um, you're traveling to people to meet them, I guess, as well. So does that end up in some quite interesting locations as well? Yeah, well, we've done them all over the place. We've done them backstage at gigs oh, okay. um, where, while someone was sound checking drums on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to deal with the, you know, fallout later. We've done them in hotel rooms. We've done them in bars at hotels. Typically, we like to get a, a nice quiet room. And oftentimes we'll get invited down by the record label and they'll have some sort of small room in the, you know, at Universal or BMG or somewhere. And, and that's perfect for us. Then we can really focus in and get the sound that we want and get the conversation that we want. But yeah, we've been all over really. Um, we've done them remotely via Skype. We've done phoners. We've done everything. These days, we typically meet with the people if we can, just mm-hmm. because you just get a better result. Yeah. Face to face with people. The over, over the phone is, is a great way of doing it if you're not able to get in person oh, isn't yeah. it but it it is different isn't it it is great i think a slightly different atmosphere to it be does because really. when you when you face to face with someone and they start saying something that's interesting to you you can give them that gesture that says <laughs> that's that's really interesting i'm going to come back with something i'm about to chip in and and the, the flow is different than when someone can't see you and they're talking and you have to wait for your moment. And then you think, well, there's no point me making that small minor comment about something you said a minute ago. Mm. I'm just going to move on here mm. because mm. what will happen is I'll mention that you'll kind of have forgotten that you said it. You'll give me a little bit more on it or repeat yourself and we'll waste a bit of time on that. So to be efficient, it's actually better to not have all the interaction that you get with an in-person one. Mm. It's it's just something we've kind of intuitively learned over time by doing them, you know. That's it. And that's the key with anything in it, but particularly creative things is sort of start now, get perfect later. Do it do it a load of times. Yeah. You get better at it. Yeah. I mean, Brian always says that he doesn't like listening to the first episodes that we did because it's like naked baby photos. You know, he just can't bear <laughs> to go back and hear himself compared to where he's at now with it. Yeah. But, um, in I terms mean, of sort of test technique for talking. Yeah. To just his whole approach to doing it really, which is great because, you know, in any creative endeavor, if you look back at the first things you did years ago and you think, hey, that sounds great you probably haven't improved that much, you know? Yeah. So you should be looking back and thinking, wow, look at the trajectory of what I've yeah, done here. that is not how I would do it now. Exactly, yeah. yeah. That's it. And yeah, definitely got to keep doing things to improve at them, I guess. And, but there's always going to be, I guess at some point, you obviously won't want to name any names, but there must have been some guests where it's been quite hard or they you haven't been able to draw out of them what you necessarily want. 
I think, well... I was interested to use the word must, but I'm assuming that's <laughs> happened at some point. I mean, there have been some people who are less given than others, and that sometimes is not due to any fault of their own. They're no. just... They're creative people who don't talk very well about process. They don't yeah. think about it that much. It's and often, hard for people. Sorry, it's hard for people to really know their creative process sometimes, as well, isn't it? It can it's be. Like, it's like asking someone how they breathe, I guess. Yeah, it, it can be for some people. It's just not something they analyze, or they don't want to analyze it because they feel like it's going to go away. Yeah. They want to understand it too much. Yeah, um, and oftentimes some of the biggest stars that you meet are the ones who haven't thought that much about their creative process almost. Yeah. It's something that has worked well for them and they keep doing it and they don't reflect in the way that, say, your, your average professional songwriter, day in, mm. day out, grafting, meeting different people, collaborating with different people, has started to formulate a series of ideas about how that works mm. in a way that, say, you know, a major star who has a lot of power and can just keep making records hasn't really reflected on. And is there a difference between someone who is a performer as well as a songwriter and someone who is a job in songwriter and then doesn't perform the material themselves. Is there a different view of it, a different approach? Um, I'm not sure that there is really. I think everyone who writes songs is just trying to do a, a fundamental kind of job where they're, they're trying to make something that is a distinctive idea that connects with someone, perhaps emotionally or in some other way. So I don't know whether... Because they perform that material, they may be more attuned to the emotional side of things or or the conveyance of that idea. Mm. So maybe there is some some distinctions there, but ultimately because we're so interested in process rather than recording or performance, um, it's kind of all the same thing for us. You know, a Carole King um, or a, a Paul McCartney um, versus a, a sort of a, um, an Egg White or someone like mm. that who's mainly in the studio with pop people. Um we're just interested in the nuts and bolts of how they put those things together. Mm. Cool. So in turn, you've got the podcast and you've got your uh, lecturing and the academic side of it. Yeah. How difficult is it then to, to still be doing your own creativity and writing songs and that kind of thing? Incredibly difficult. Be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I struggle with that balance all the time mm. really. And I've got two kids as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm a dad, I'm um, working full time and I'm doing the podcast as well. And so, yeah, it's a real struggle. And I try my best to at least play guitar or keyboard every day. And there's a, a huge archive of material that Brian and I have put together. But actually getting to the point where we can finish that material, get into a studio, spend the days that are required to record all that stuff is at the moment really challenging. But mm. we're, we're trying to redress that balance now. We're trying to bring that more around i had a, a particular dedicated space um which we called so the jerker towers yeah. for a long time um and i don't have that space anymore now so i'm in the process of developing a new space um having a you know my, my garage is going to become this studio space where i'll actually be able to have all my guitars and all my equipment connected and ready for me at any time so i'm hoping that that's going to be the catalyst that gets us back into um finishing the recordings that we've started and all the other songs that we've written which we haven't quite put out in the world yet you yeah know? and that's one of the big things isn't it is just having stuff set up and ready to go it really is and guests on the show have talked about that yeah. you know they've said you have to and neil finn in particular said you have to connect your stuff and have it ready to go i don't want to you know be plugging things in or trying to find things i just want to be able to pick it up and go mm. you know if, the, if inspiration strikes you don't want to be hindered by logistics <laughs> you know i've heard people talking about having the office hours as well so you know your songwriting whether it's every day or a couple of times a week or whatever, those hours in your diary are blocked out mm -hmm. like you're at work and people have to know they can't contact you or you're not going to reply to emails in that three or four hour block. And that is, again, that's where you're tipping into it, treating it as a profession, I guess, isn't it? Rather than just being something that you do. It's part of your week that is as important as all the other things that you do. Yeah, I think that's really important to do. And, you know, there are obviously some famous stories of songwriters who do that, people like Randy Newman. I'm not sure how true that really is, actually. But, um, yeah, I think the nine to five is, is a way to just make stuff happen. You know, it's not waiting for inspiration. It's saying, I've got a block of time. I'm going to try my best to produce something. And, you know, some songwriters sit down and say, right, it's, we're going to write 20 songs today. Mm. And they do their best. And if they only get four and one of them is decent, then that was worth it ultimately. Yeah. So, you know, strategies for productivity basically um, are great for songwriters. And I think, you know, more 
songwriters should work that way, really. Absolutely. And it's that thing of getting through the not so good stuff as well. For me, anyway, it's like if you're doing if anything, but say it's a song, you're, you're writing something and you're like, oh, I'm not sure how great this is. That can be quite disappointing, but you've got to get that one out of the way or get through it or fix it or whatever it is you're going to do. Or with finish it. it. Or finish it. Yeah. Because once that's there, you can move on to something else. And another thing you don't really hear about is all of the these great songwriters, the stuff they must have written that we've never heard that wasn't that great mm-hmm. or didn't quite work or they didn't finish. Yeah. But that to get through those to get to the good stuff. Yeah. And there's two things that come out of that, I think. Um, when we had Glenn Ballard on, he said that he'd written about a thousand songs and he reckoned only about 10% of those had become really successful. So the ratio of what you have to produce to mm. be a Glenn Ballard is quite mm. significant. Um, and also then when you've produced that stuff, don't throw it away because there's plenty of people we've spoken to who've said, you know, there was a bridge I wrote 15 years ago that slotted into this song last week. That was perfect. Mm. You know, so actually archiving and documenting what you do and keeping hold of it can be really valuable as well. Mm. And also it's, that's where the collaboration is quite useful as well, isn't it? Because there have been times in my experience where I've got someone I don't think is that great and you happen to show it to someone and they're like, that's it. That's that's the bit you need. Why aren't you doing that one instead of these other 10 songs that yeah. you brought to me? Seeing it from someone else's point of view, you suddenly go, oh, okay. There's a thing from improv, it's, got the, it's a comedy improv and stuff, which applies to so many things which is your your obvious isn't everybody else's obvious so yeah. sometimes you can discard an idea because you're like well it's too obvious but it isn't necessarily yeah you know even if you sit and play guitar with someone else their go-to stuff will be different to your go-to stuff yeah um which means they might really like your go-to stuff it, you know yeah. i find all that stuff really interesting yeah yeah i find that to be the case with comedy and all kinds of things that people well it's so subjective obviously yeah. as well isn't it that's the thing. It's like, it's very hard to say. I feel like when I started out doing creative things, I wanted to be able to be like, okay, that is objectively good. Everyone can see that is objectively good. They might not like it. And like, but I don't even think it can work like that somehow. <laughs> yeah. Is something good or not? It's very hard to actually put down to it. You could have a completely different opinion about it, which is why hits are so interesting, isn't it? Because a significant number of people have decided it is good. Yeah. <laughs> but there still will be so many who don't. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, you kind of have to unpick how all those people became aware of that thing and is that just a kind of a a matter of a kind of a corporate promotional machine that puts that in their heads for x amount of time until it becomes a hit i find the whole yesterday film really interesting in that that point of view of like if no one had heard any of those songs before and then heard them they would be the greatest songs that were ever written so it's really interesting because everybody didn't hear all those big songs (laughs) at once so, so they they did not hear Strawberry Fields Forever in the same week that they heard Love Me Do. Mm-hmm. Would they have been ready for Strawberry Fields Forever in 1962? And would a band coming out straight away with, I've just picked Strawberry Fields as an example, but one of those songs, would they have the same impact? Because the Beatles already had this... Um, momentum. Momentum, <laughs> you know. People loved them already. Yeah. Not to say that Strawberry Fields is not a great song, but it might not be as immediate as some of their earlier puppets that got them their fans. Of course. Yeah, and I think, the, you know, the fact that a song like um, She Loves You has been exposed billions of times on the radio um, helps with people's acceptance of the fact that yeah. that's a successful song and that's a hit and that we like it. Yeah. You know, and I think you're right. You're absolutely right. It's, um, it's, it's unpicking... You know, that works. And- yeah, because, you know, there's a narrative that accompanies the Beatles and a story of their path that actually helps us to interpret and understand and appreciate the music. You can't just have them as standalone entities and expect people to respond in the way that they have. And as, their music is great. I'm a massive Beatles fan. Of course. Some fair to just to talk about the Beatles, but any of those bands of that era or any era, it isn't, it's very unlikely that it's just the music. Yeah. Like, I can't really think of any artists where it is just the music. People are buying into other things as well. Of course. And, you know, I'm a massive fan of The Who as well, and I love their music and I love Pete Townsend's songwriting. But you have to say that a lot of their initial impact was their stage presence and their newspaper appearances. And it's the same with The Stones and all of these people and, and Billie Eilish now. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not just the music, which I think sometimes musicians and songwriters can forget a little bit. The stuff I'm producing is so fantastic. Everybody must pay attention to it. But it's it's kind of 
not quite enough, is it? Just yeah, that- exactly. People don't listen in a vacuum, do they? No. They want to buy into something, into a lifestyle or into a, you know, a way of life or into a, some sort of creative vision. Mm. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of young artists and young songwriters who think, you know, that it's, it's a meritocracy. You know, if you write good material, then you'll eventually rise to the surface. But, um, unfortunately, that's not really the case. No. And it, it's interesting how different the, the industry in that sense is now. Like we were talking about with podcasts, it is possible to do your own stuff and have a fairly small audience and be a bit of a cottage industry and have a career from that, mm-hmm. which maybe 30 years ago, it wouldn't have been possible in quite the same way because even just recording was so expensive. You needed a record label to pay for it for you. And then you owed the record label for the yeah. rest of your career. Because <laughs> now you can put stuff out. But the other side of that is there is so much music now. Yeah. And you're competing with every artist in the world and every artist that's ever existed. Because <laughs> <laughs> on Spotify, you are, you know, fighting for space with not just your contemporaries in your city, but Bark. <laughs> everybody that's ever yeah. existed and everybody who will ever exist as well. Um, so that's quite interesting the way that things have changed. But I, I, something came out of Songwriting Studies Conference as well. There was a couple of comments from people like, we need to take all our music off Spotify. It's no good. We're making no money if we don't put our music on. And then the inverse of that is like, well, so some people would say, I love that because everybody in the world can hear my music. It's not monetized in quite the same way, but we've got to find different ways of doing it. My point of view is you can't put it back in the box. It's kind of already happened. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are some serious issues in the way that songwriters get paid these days um, and everybody wants to make a sustainable living. And I think that that's important. And I'm lucky in that I get to work with organisations like the Ivers Academy who are really champions for that sort of thing. But at the same time, you know, yeah, we need to understand that it's not going back. And I think most people realise that at this point that, you know, the genie's not going back in the bottle. So um, you need to embrace new technologies and and it will even out you know like like the emergence of any major technology in the past mm. um you know there's always a period of rejection and compromise and acceptance that happens and i think you know we'll get there i mean just a few years ago it was all the music industry is over um it's all going to fa- and then we realized well actually you know these are billion pound companies they're not going anywhere it's fine don't worry, they'll survive, you know. And what we need to do now is make sure that artists can survive mm. um, and make a living. But, you know, the music industry has a, a very long history of not treating artists that well. Not so. particularly caring whether, yeah. whether the artists survive or not. And that's the other thing that I talked about on this before is, you know, for all of the, the Led Zeppelin selling millions of records and all that kind of stuff, there were so many artists who produced stuff that was great and sold a lot, but they didn't necessarily see the money from that. Yeah. Um, so artists have always been screwed in that sense, I guess. Now there is an ability to, as I say, to do your own thing and build an audience yourself without maybe needing those gatekeepers in quite the same way that you used to. Yeah, and the same's been true for us in podcasting, really, because we've remained completely independent. We've never had to co-opt the podcast with any kind of other organisation. We don't use sponsors. We don't have advertisements. It doesn't really cost that much for us to do, so we don't have to, you know have uh, some kind of partner involved to invest in it or mm. to keep the lights on or to pay staff mm. or it's a two-man project, you know, um, which is great for us because we maintain full control of everything. But at the same time, you know, you you do want to have relationships with other uh, media companies and things that might help you along your way. It just depends on what your vision is really. And I think a lot of artists out there have this idea that a songwriting career, um, you know, <laughs> they can go out and just you know, you need to get a deal and you need to, to traverse through the traditional steps of the record industry. And that's not really the case anymore. And it certainly hasn't been the case for us and it probably not the case for a lot of really talented independent artists out there. Mm. It's true of, of most businesses, I think, in general. It's, yeah. it's possible just to have a direct relationship with your with your customer or your audience. Um, so just do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, for that, for most people, that will become the default position, I imagine. Yeah. But... Um, I mean, you can't compete with the marketing might of major organizations, of course. But at the same time, not everybody needs that or wants that. You know, of course, people used to use the term unsigned as a way of kind of implying that if you didn't, if you weren't of the condition of being signed, then you were this whole other category. But really, it's these days, it's like, well, you know, 
what what does what does being signed really mean does it mm. mean that you're guaranteed to have some kind of success does it mean that your album's ever going to be released does mm. it, you know mm. a lot of the benefits that you would assume come with being signed are not actually that helpful in a in a climate where you've got access to technology access to an audience access to distribution yeah you know? and as you say independence which you know Oftentimes, if you're signed or doing those kinds of things, there's so many other people trying to get involved in what you're actually producing, which could be good. <laughs> yeah. But it might not be bad because they could be changing what it is you're actually trying to do, I guess. Um, well, I mean, that's the case, isn't it? Whenever you partner up with anyone who has any kind of say in what you're doing, mm. you, you know, you're going to compromise. Mm. And that could be good, but also in the majority of cases, it can be bad. <laughs> Particularly if you're looking at something like, don't be unfair to record labels, but something like that, a traditional kind of gatekeeper. They want to produce stuff that they know will be successful. And as we've discussed, it doesn't really work like that. So producing stuff that you know is successful tends to be doing the same again as you did last time. Yeah. And of course, the best stuff doesn't come from that. The best stuff comes from something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the record label um, strategy over the years has been to just do as m- as many things as possible in the hope that one of them is going to stick. Yeah. Um, which isn't really a model for finding greatness, really. Not really, because it's that's the other thing, isn't it? It's unlikely that however great somebody is, they're going to be great on their first attempt at doing something. Yeah. So what you want actually is to stick with someone for a, a long time. Yeah, because- you need to believe in someone and develop them, really. And that's why, that's how, you know, artists like Springsteen and others actually took hold, is mm. that they had a chance to make multiple records, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Make the mistakes and yeah. learn from them. Cool. Okay, Simon, that's been really, really interesting. Could you remind us, please, where we can hear the podcast and where we can find out more about Songwriting Studies as well? Yep. Songwriting Studies is at songwritingstudies.com. So that's the academic network. We've got our next event coming up in May, and then there'll be one one after that later in the year. And the podcast is at sodajerker.com. So just go there or have a look in Apple Podcasts for Soda Jerker and you'll find us. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. See you next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers podcast. If you could subscribe to the podcast, share it, like it, comment on it, review it, tell all your friends about it, all of those things would be fantastic because the more that people do that, the more that new people get a chance to hear the podcast, join the community and enjoy the content that we're putting out. You can find me at robertlanemusic.co.uk and I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Robert Lane Music. Please get in touch, let me know if you're enjoying the programmes and who you think I should talk to in the future. Thank you, until next time, goodbye.